wrestling fans, welcome to another edition of Charting the Territories, the podcast that takes you back in history and looks at the Leroy McGurk Wrestling Territory and Mid-South Wrestling at various points in time. My name is Al Getz, and I am the host of this shindig, along with the inimitable Mr. John Boucher. Al, hello, Al. Hello, hey. Al. Hello, listeners. Hello, wrestling fans. I guess wrestling, wrestling fans and listeners fall under the same umbrella for our purposes here. You never know. Someone might you know, be interested in like cartography and like type the wrong uh, word into the search bar and popped uh, us up. So there will be little mapping, um, although actually there might even be a little bit of mapping of territories uh, at some point in time. But for most of the for most of the way, we're going to be charting them, not graphing them. Uh-huh. But this month, John, we're going to look at the third quarter of 1981 in Mid-South Wrestling, as well as the third quarter of 1964 in the McGurk Territory. Plus, we'll discuss the new Frequent Opponents and Partners chart as we look at mm-hmm. the talent roster. And I'll give an update on uh, the exciting cliffhanger from my Stats 101 podcast earlier this month. Uh, we'll talk about my trip to Little Rock, but also I just got back from from Waterloo, Iowa, for the Tragos Thez Hall of Fame induction weekend. So I'll talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about two books written by wrestlers, one of which is one of my favorite autobiographies, and the other, well, we will get to it at some point in the podcast, and we will all, we'll just say, is Al brave slash stupid enough to give a bad review to a book written by a man who is the master of the sugar hold? Ooh. We'll find out. It might just be this book, honestly, John, this might be the threat level midnight of the pro wrestling world. Uh, oh, of course, boy. that was from an episode of The Office. And that's not yes. the only reference to The Office we'll be making this month, as one oh. of the wrestlers we'll be talking about was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, yeah. but is far more associated with Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also going to talk about a wrestler who was shot six times by a drug trafficking truck driver and not only survived, but was back in a wrestling ring less than a year later. We'll Great. tell you her story. Yes, her story hmm. a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, but John, uh, just recently, in fact, uh, a week uh, prior to when we were recording this, we uh, heard the news that Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff, passed away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we are looking at the third quarter of 1981 in Mid-South, and Orndorff was a really big part of 1981 Mid-South Wrestling. His heel turn uh, earlier in the year led to uh, a big run for him. He feuded with Jake Roberts, Junkyard Dog, uh, a little feud with Jim Garvin, also Ted DiBiase. Now, John, you and I both grew up around the same time in the same area, the Northeast. So your memories of Paul are probably similar to mine. But what are your memories of Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff? Sort of, yeah, I mean, my first time seeing Orndorff, you know, is probably the same as yours, late, late 83 on WWF. TV. Uh, and I remember before he was even lined with uh, Piper and, and Schultz, he would come out alone and either Captain Lou or Freddie Blassie would, would come out to ringside. They'd both waddle up one or the other would come up and waddle out to ringside and watch Orndorff's matches like they were like they were scouting him. Uh, and I always thought that was kind of cool, like they were prepping him for some sort of, you know, managerial bid like they did with savage later or something yeah and then uh, they did it with bigelow too a, a yep. little after that yeah um uh, and just like the multiple feuds he had with hogan just an incredible incredible draw he ha- it's got he's got to be up there with 
you know, when you look at Hogan's top rivals from that era with like Piper, later Andre, Randy Savage, you know, um, and going back years later after the fact and watching this stuff, I really love his, 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 his run in 1982, both in mid South, mid South and in, in Georgia, uh, such a great, great run. Like in 82, he has the, the baby face turn after the, the roop angle with the car sabotage. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just great. And then he goes to, to, to Georgia where he's like immediately plugged into the national heavyweight, heavyweight title, uh, picture there wins the the wins the belt from uh, buzz sawyer i think then this is really cool i thought he relinquishes the belt to pursue uh rick flair and the and the world title and i think they have two matches at the omni one's a draw and one is a non i forget but they're neither clean wins for for flair which is impressive for for those days and then you know, then he refocuses attention back on the national title and wins it from Super B, I think. Then a big few as a superstar. They go back and forth the rest of the year. Uh, and he's I just love the way he's booked. Like he's he's just booked like a sympathetic but kick-ass baby face. And it's like exactly the kind of baby face you want to get behind. Like even now, it's the kind of baby face people want to get behind. You yeah, because he's, to he's the way... muscular, but in some ways he's also undersized for the era against a lot of opponents. So he looks like a wrestler. He looks like an athlete. He looks like a tough guy. But at the same time, he is often, you know, outmanned, out, out bulked, out uh, muscled. Um, And and, and that really made him a great babyface. But he was such a great heel, too. And, and, uh, you know, even years later, he he sort of, you know, reinvented himself. Uh, He had the run with uh, Paul Roma as pretty wonderful. Uh, And then, you know, that the... uh, the Gary Spivey bit, which had one of the, the uh, greatest or worst uh, entrance music of all time uh, with the uh, operatic, they call him Mr. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he is so wonderful <laughs> and he knows it too. So <laughs> rest in peace, one. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Yeah, we'll be talking in. more about him later on in the podcast, but we're going to begin where we always do, and that is with Shit John Bought Me Off eBay. And recall, John has been authorized to spend uh, around $50 of my money every month and buy me random shit off of eBay. So uh, we have one package. I don't know if there's more than one item in it or not, but it is one package. It came from a seller in Lindhurst, New Jersey. So we will see what is inside, and we will see what shit John bought me <laughs> off of eBay. This isn't. How is the packaging on this? Is it uh, problematic? No, this is not problem. This was very basic. It was in a uh, a priority mail envelope. This is a uh, picture. It's a picture of the cowboy Bill Watts. But I think it's it's it's. I don't know what you call it, if it's like a lithograph or what, but it's, you know, it's not just a photograph. It's on, it's on like a very thin sheet of aluminum. Oh yeah. That's actually a, a metal printing plate that this they would a, use for. Oh, so uh, this would be like the original that they would use yeah. to fire off all the eight by tens that were sold at yeah. the arenas. Oh wow. Yeah. That's very yeah. cool. And various print publications. Yeah. Yeah, okay. This is the cowboy. This is an original uh wow. 
That's very yeah. cool. On the back, it's got uh, Spencer International Press in Reading, Massachusetts. Oh, huh, interesting. I got the was where this was manufactured, I guess. Yeah, I, so I wonder of, if this so this would have been from his I, I guess that means this might have been from his WWF run. Huh, if they're possibly. using a printer in Massachusetts, it doesn't necessarily mean that, but that's interesting. But this is really cool. Yeah. I'm going to, so, so if you go to a local uh, indie wrestling event, you see eight by tens of <laughs> cowboy Bill Watts. Uh, that, that was me. I'm, uh, I'm redoing them. We're going to try cool. and reach a whole new generation of fans. Yeah, it's a hit. Cool, cool, it's cool. also, it's, it's not really solid, but it's, it's aluminum. So it's, speaking of making a hit, I could probably whack somebody over the head with it. And you yeah, know, maybe, I, maybe, you know, hurt them. It's interesting. I have a couple of those. One of them is a thin aluminum like that, like that. And then I have one that's actually mounted to like a big block. So I was, I was curious which, uh, how this would be delivered or how, yeah, no, would... this is the thin aluminum. Cool. 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 All right. Well, let's, uh, let's march on. We were going to go to the third quarter of 1981 yeah. in mid South. And, um, before we begin, I want to mention a lot of the information from this quarter, and particularly the TV angles, come from my pal Brian Ackman, who runs the Mid-South Wrestling Universe Appreciation Group on Facebook. As we get later on into 1981, those episodes are going to be on the uh, on the Peacock. As a matter of fact, they oh, just okay. recently got uploaded. Uh, I believe everything that had been on the old WWE Network, so from like December 1981 up through 1986, is now on Peacock. Oh, very cool. So we'll uh, have that. Between that and uh, the uh, the Mid-South Wrestling TV Review podcast that uh, Brian oh. Lass and Mike Mills do, we'll, we'll have everything covered. But up to December 1981 is where we don't have a lot of that TV. But thankfully, Brian uh, not only was a fan in the day, but he actually kept notes. And, mm. uh, he's, uh, he actually took screenshots, took photos of his, you know, notes written in uh, notebooks, uh, oh, from wow. 40 plus years ago and sent them to me. But he also, uh, he was at the July 4th Superdome show, July 4th, oh, 1981, wow. which is where Orndorff beat Jake Roberts to win the North American title. And what's interesting is the finish to this match because Grizzly Smith threw in the towel for Jake. And this was something I'm sure a small number of fans knew, uh, but this was not acknowledged at all on TV that Grizzly was Jake's dad. So I don't even think it was like uh, a teasing that it's just Grizzly was the on air, you know, authority or, or, or whatever role he was playing at that time. Um, he was just the one that came in and threw the towel and Orndorff at this point in time, Orndorff is wrestling twice on a lot of the house shows. He will have a title defense against Jake Roberts and then come back for the main event, which was a lights out match against junkyard dog hmm. and junkyard dog would also usually have a, a match earlier in the card as well. Typically him and Murdoch against the Samoans. Uh, but there's uh, a few changes to the roster in the summer of 1981 Murdoch leaves the grappler leaves Jake leaves super destroyer leaves and Don diamond leaves. And so taking their place are several returnees. Uh, that's Ted DiBiase, Mike George, and Ken Mantell, plus newcomers Bob Orton Jr. and Bob Roop, and a wrestler who hadn't been here since he was a rookie in 1973. Back then, he was known as Ali Vaziri, and now, of course, he was the Iron Sheik. Mm -hmm. So, all right, if, if we're talking about a trade, 
if you uh, were trading 1981 Murdoch, Grappler, Jake, Super D, and Diamond for Ted, Mike George, Ken Mantell, the two Bobs, and Cheeky Baby, John, is that a good trade or a bad trade? Who wins? Oh, let's see. Ah, uh, 1981. Yeah. Hmm. It, <sighs> it's, I, I think it's a pretty fair, it, you, know, you know, trade. Yeah, I got it. Uh, yeah. Murdoch for DiBiase. Those are the two probably top yeah, guys. Was, uh, yeah. Grappler and Super D are, you know, that, that upper mid-card heel tag team. And we could easily see Orton and Roop sort of and being George the equivalent and, of them. Um, Diamond. Maybe. So Di so you have, then you have Diamond uh, and Jake, uh, and you get Mike George, Ken Mantell, and the Sheik. Yeah. So, pretty yeah, good. it's a pretty even uh, exchange of talents. And, of course, all the wrestlers that leave go various places. But if you visit our blog at chartingtheterritories.com, you'll see a new chart published when we cover each of these time periods. And we now have these spot ratings, which measure a wrestler's average position or spot on the cards. But now we also have frequent opponents and partners. And uh, this is something I've been tinkering with for a while. And uh, finally, uh, after beta testing it behind the scenes for about three or four months, I decided to launch it uh, earlier this month. It does a much better job of identifying what feuds are because it's based not only on how many times a match occurs on the house shows, but also where on the card that match occurs. If you remember sometimes when we were looking at the old version of this, which was the feud score, you'd see two mid-carders or even two preliminary wrestlers show up. And they're not feuding. It just so happens they're wrestling each other a lot, maybe because they travel together or work well together or various other reasons. But this way, if a match happens higher up on the cards, that's where it's going to be reflected on the frequent opponents chart. And then also the frequent partners lets you see, for example, if JYD is feuding with both Afa and Sika, well, you need to also glance and see who he's usually teaming with. Because in this case, uh, for the first few weeks of the quarter, it's Murdoch exclusively. But after Murdoch leaves, Junkyard Dog doesn't have a full-time regular tag team partner. But we can still see he's feuding against the Samoans. He's wrestling against them regularly. So you sort of have to take this to mean it's JYD teaming with a variety of partners against the Samoans. And towards the end of the quarter, I think both Roop and DiBiase uh, show up as frequent, not regular partners, but frequently enough to uh, be noted on this chart. Um, JYD, of course, was the highest rated wrestler going by spot rating this quarter. In fact, uh, remember spot rating a 1.00 is the max. His doesn't go below a 0.90 for the entire quarter. And in my experience, that doesn't happen a lot. You know, even when you have the red hot baby face like JYD or Lawler or Dusty, they still are occasionally in the semi on some house shows when, when another feud, when they, when they have a big stip match or a title match or what have you, occasionally JOID's match will take a, a seat to that one. So to be over a 0 0.90, that's an indication that you are the top part in the pun dog uh, <laughs> in the territory. And as we mentioned, he is often doing double duty. And, and just so you know, um, when a wrestler wrestles twice on the same card, I only count, his spot rating for his highest match on the card. 
Um, so that's so that's something that wouldn't affect JYD's spot rating, him wrestling twice. Uh, if he's in the main event and wrestling later on the card, I only credit him with the main event for that particular house show. Now, Orndorff, uh, as we mentioned, was feuding with both JYD and Jake Roberts. He also ends up in a small little feud with uh, Jim Garvin in the middle of the quarter. And uh, when Ted DiBiase gets going in, in the fourth quarter of 1981, we're going to see Orndorff feuding with Ted. But as far as the uh, feud with Jim Garvin on our blog, we actually have a town-by-town, match-by-match listing of that. Uh, after JYD, if we rank the wrestlers by their spot rating, below him is Murdoch, then Paul Orndorff, then Afa, Sika, and Ted DiBiase. And those are your main eventers. They all have a spot rating of 0. .80 or above for the quarter. The upper mid-carders are Bob Roop, Jake Roberts, Super Destroyer, Jim Garvin, and Kerry Von Erich. And Kerry is sort of, he's a regular, but he's not a full-timer. He makes regular appearances at some of the shows. He's featured on TV, but he's going back and forth between here and and uh, Dallas. Now, the mid-carders are the grappler, and he's being moved down the cards on his way out of the territory. We'll, we'll talk about his uh, exit from Mid-South a little bit later. Um, but also Don Diamond, Bob Orton Jr., Mike George, and the Iron Sheik. Now, both Bobs, Orton Jr. and Roop, are baby faces in their initial appearances uh, in this territory. Orton wrestles one week on TV as a babyface, but the following week he turns heel. Uh, Roop is babyface for a little while longer. In fact, his first match in the territory on TV, he wins the Louisiana uh, state title from Super Destroyer. But by the end of the quarter, an angle is taped over the course of two weeks on TV that leads to Roop turning heel. And that's and that's something that Roop did a lot. He would be brought in as a babyface and then turn heel. And in many ways, uh, his sort of role is similar to that of another wrestler with a, an amateur wrestling pedigree. Uh, and that was Dale Lewis hmm. in that they weren't natural heels although i think roop eventually became a very good heel but i think because of their uh, at legit credentials and their in-ring style you sort of have to bring them in as a babyface. and in many ways they're presented as a bland to some extent not as charismatic or, or colorful as the other baby faces and so this leads to the the wrestler getting sort of frustrating that that, that they're not getting the opportunities and leads to them turning heel it's something that roop did i think more than just here and I know it's something that Dale Lewis did here uh, a decade earlier, and I think did it in other places as well. So that's a good you know, sort of role for them. Now, on the other side of the coin was Mike George, who had last been here as a heel, um, and he comes back, and his first week on TV, uh, early on in the show, he wrestles against DiBiase. But by the end of the show, he ends up turning babyface, saving JYD from an attack by the Samoans and manager Ernie Ladd. We talked about the grappler and uh, one of my favorite wrestling autobiographies that I oh, yeah. plug a lot is the grappler's book, which is titled grappler memoirs of a masked madman. And it's written by uh, Lynn, the grappler Denton uh, along with Joe. Uh, Vithi- oh, good luck. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> v I T H A Y A T H I L. That's almost, uh, that's Pretty almost, uh, you know, spelled the same backwards and forwards. <laughs> <laughs> but not quite. Um, 
So before we talk about the book, I do want to talk about his role here. This is where he started doing the loaded boot gimmick. And uh, we're going to post a picture on our blog, on our podcast companion piece. Um, it's a photo of Killer Carl Cox, but on the inset is the grappler. Uh, and the loaded boot gimmick, they did an injury angle where, and then grappler claimed that one of his legs ended up being slightly shorter than the other. So not only did he need to wear that loaded boot, that built up boot, but he also walked around with a cane. And this led to a great angle on TV where Grappler is set to wrestle against young Terry Lathan and Killer Carl Cox comes out to ringside and takes the cane and starts playing around with it, you know, miming like he's putting, not miming, but, you know, making like he's uh, putting. And of course, Grappler is upset about this. He finally leans through the ropes to say, hey, Cox, what are you doing? And of course, Cox whacks him over the head with the cane oh. and then proceeds to beat the tar out of him in the middle of the ring. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I love this. Uh, it's on YouTube. We'll post a link to it on YouTube on our blog on the companion piece. But I really love after uh, Cox lays in the beating, the way Grappler sells it, he starts twitching oh, his left leg. It's convulsing, yeah. Yeah, it, it, and, and convulsing. And it's really, yeah. really good. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the YouTube clips. Another one, which is great, is uh, an angle from Portland with Grappler and uh, John Nord. Oh, my God, uh, yeah. And How Roddy Piper gets Nord involved. Here? Oh, Nord is Nord an is absolute enormous. beast. Oh, my God. Um, and, you know, and this is, uh, I, gosh, Piper is just one of my favorite talkers. He, he, he uses such different speech patterns than so many wrestlers do. Yeah. At one point, he just very calmly and very, you know, succinctly says, you can walk away now. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then he always, he never said wrestle. He always said fight. fight. And so at one point he's saying, you know, I, I, I stopped fighting. I don't fight no more. Yeah. And just like, the way he delivers these lines and says these yeah. things just adds an aura of realness. And then it gets batshit crazy with oh. a fire extinguisher. Yeah. I have the exact same thing in my notes. Like, I love how everything, everything is a fight. It's not a wrestling match. It's a fight. He doesn't say, I retired from wrestling. He says, I quit fighting. And it's just like, it's fantastic. Just fantastic. Yeah, so this is, a, I think it's about a nine, ten minute clip of two separate angles. The first is them in the crow's nest. And then the other one, uh, not only do you have Grappler and Norton Piper, but you've got Buddy Rose in there. Rose. So you've got yep. just, you know, some of the all-time great talkers uh, and wrestlers from Portland wrestling history. Uh, and just listening to the crowd go nuts for Piper, because, I mean, this was right. this was not that long after he is, you know, a bona fide, you know, pay-per-view superstar. Yep. And he comes back to wrestling in, in these smaller venues in Portland. He went back to his roots. The third YouTube clip is just uh, an interesting footnote in the annals of history because yeah. you might not have known this, but Lynn Denton, uh, without the mask, you know, and no longer as the grappler, was uh, victim number 83 in Bill Goldberg's streak. Yeah. So if you want to see that match, if you want to see Bill Goldberg against Lynn Denton, uh, that's on YouTube and we have a link to it. And that's just one of those, you know, one of those little known facts that he, uh, did have a, a brief run in WCW, uh, doing nothing special in the prelims, but he probably got paid more for that little run than he ever did, uh, for yeah. anything else. Um, but this book, you know, I actually, I read it a while ago. I reread it yesterday, the day before we were recording this on my plane flight home from Waterloo, Iowa. And it struck me that, Lynn the Grappler Denton is one of the, the the exact reason why I 
developed the spot rating and these statistics uh, at charting the territories because we know everything there is to know about Dusty and Bruno and Hogan and Stone Cold and even JYD and Lawler. And, but that next level of wrestlers like the grappler or, or, you know, other wrestlers that were just mid carters and maybe had a couple of main event runs in smaller territories. We don't have any data for them. You know, I, I try and think about when Lynn passes away, what Meltzer would write about him. Yeah. And it's, you know, he was a journeyman mid Carter. He had a big run in mid South and drew, this was his biggest house. And then he went to Portland where he was a top star and booker for a few years. But you're missing so much more. You're missing mm-hmm. his you know, tag teams with Tony Anthony. You're missing his runs in Memphis. There's just so many things about Lynn Denton that need to be documented. So, John, you've read the book. Yeah. Um, what are your sort of most interesting uh, takeaways from the it book? It is very similar to, to you. I, I love I love this book. I think the, this is when we first, maybe even before we started the podcast, I was like, any, anything you recommended, any, anything for me to read that would be good topical for this. And you recommended this book to me. And I also just reread it over the last few weeks. Um, it's one of my favorite uh, wrestling biographies, autobiographies as well. Up there, that in the Ron Starr book. Um, and something about guys like Denton and Ron Starr, like you said, it's, it's a combination of their career path uh, and their intelligence um, their minds for their 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 business for for the business wrestling business, their humility and, and their you know their candor when discussing their careers and and their lives and some of some of the mistakes they may have made in their in their younger years. Yeah, and um, yeah, and like you, you said, I like, guys you, like yeah, you mentioned their humility and and they really they do it without sort of self-effacing, without knocking themselves. It's just they are realists. This was yep. this was their job. This was their profession. This was how they made a living, put food on the table. Both of them were family. Family men. So, you know, they're not bragging about, I sold out this, I did that, I did this, this is, you know, this was my job. I, I think I did it well. I didn't know I made a couple of bad decisions in life that probably cost me. But uh, at the end of the day, I provided for my family and for myself. Yeah. Like he talks about, you know, in, in the book, uh, you know, you know, he, he's, when he's main eventing for Watts, you know, he complains to Watts about his pay. Um, and Watts essentially is like, well, if you know, that's, that's not, you're getting what you're getting. That's good. You should realize that. And if that's not good enough for you, then you should leave. And he leaves. Uh, and then he goes to work for, for Ole Anderson and Ole sort of maybe conspiring with Watts. He teaches him a lesson yep. <laughs> and sort of keep, like keeping his pay down really, really well. He's like, you know, well, if your family starves, you know, then that's your, that's your problem. Um, and he doesn't really make any decent money for a good five years or so after that. But he's able to admit and realize, um, you know, that he maybe at that point was getting a little, you know, too big for his britches, as they say, and how that ego checked, you know, helped him long term. Yeah, well, that's often because he was still really young uh, during his big Mid-South run. And oftentimes that stardom and that, you know, bump in pay can lead to people, you know, thinking it'll last forever and thinking they're untouchable. But one of the things that struck me about the book is that in many ways, Lynn Denton was like the Forrest Gump of wrestling. If you remember, <laughs> Forrest Gump was an ancillary oh, yeah. character of, of all these great moments in history. Yep, yep. Lynn Denton 
was in was a rookie, a prelim wrestler in Mid Atlantic when they've got Flair, Piper, Steamboat. He actually drove Flair around because Flair had to surrender his license, so he learned <laughs> to talk from Flair. Yeah. He's in Mid South when it you know takes off. He's in Memphis uh, when Lawler and Savage are teaming up. He's in world mm-hmm. class, uh, you know, towards you know, the latter end of the peak of that territory. But he's there when Gino Hernandez dies. Like, I feel like yep. if you had photographs of some of the biggest moments in wrestling history, that somewhere <laughs> in the background of those photos, a fuzzy Lynn Denton would be on the other side <laughs> of the ring because he always yeah. seemed to be in the places where things happen, even if he wasn't the guy that was making them happen. Yep. And he, he seemed to be, a, 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 seemed to be a very good sponge as well. Uh, in terms, you know, even just getting the idea for the mask and the name from Don Kernodal mm-hmm. working in the Carolina and getting and then the, the catchphrase, the, and then the from, catchphrase Ox from Ox Baker. Yeah. There's you know, so much in this book. If you haven't read it, both John and I recommend it strongly. Grappler memoirs of a masked madman. And now another book that I will talk about. So originally when I was doing research uh, for this episode of the podcast, we knew we were going to talk some about Roop. So I wanted to find out some things about Bob that maybe our listeners didn't know about. And I didn't know about this, but he wrote a novel um, about 20 years ago called Deathmatch, a Mick Michaels novel. Well, so first off, the quotes on the back of the book are amazing. Um, he's got a quote from Danny Hodge. Uh, so Bob scores a pinfall with death match. Also Barry Rose uh, oh. of uh, Bowdrin and Barry. Um, this is a great quote. Death match will smash your senses and slam your sensibilities into submission. Forget what you know about wrestling because Roop has written a clever novel with more twists than a figure four leg lock. Oh, I could hear I could hear Barry Rose saying it. Yes, we also have a quote from that cantankerous old Georgia fuck Ole Anderson. <laughs> Oh boy. Only a pro wrestler could have written a novel like Deathmatch. Bob Root was a good pro, but he is an even better writer. And I, you know what? When I first started reading this book, John, I strongly disagreed with that statement from Ole Anderson. But I will say this. The ending of the book is really, really good. So... I want to tell our listeners the original plan for this. So first off, the book is out of print and hard to find. I somehow was able to snag a copy for under 50 bucks, but I, I think if you want to get your hands on it, you're going to have to spend at least twice that much. But my original plan was to read it and then send it to you so that you could read it before we recorded this podcast. But there was a monkey wrench in that. I noticed that when, uh, I was planning my trip to Waterloo for the uh, Tregosthes Hall of Fame. That Roop was scheduled to be there. So I'm like, well, now I have to bring the book with me to get him to yep. sign it. So John has not read this book. Nope. And, you know, uh, as as things go, Roop was unable to make the uh, Tregosthes Induction Hall of Fame weekend. So he wasn't even there. Oh, so man. me holding on to this book to get him to sign it was all for naught. But this is a book about a man who his brother works for uh, the CIA and he is recruited to go undercover into the world of professional wrestling to uncover a money laundering ring. Oh. 
Now that premise actually is is really cool, and the way they they sort of set this up makes sense. The idea being that um, the uh, main bad guy in the film was a Japanese mobster who also owned the uh, the pro wrestling promotion, um, but. You know, if you know Japan, when they have their wrestling tours, they bring in wrestlers from all over the world to come in. You know, they've got a few Americans, they have an English guy, they might have someone from South Africa, so on and so forth. So in here, they sort of tweak that and that they have a many more wrestlers from all around the world and end up uh, giving them counterfeit bills to unknowingly and in some cases knowingly bring back to bring back home with them where this mobsters operatives would pick up these fake bills and spend them all over the place. Hmm. The size and the scope and the time frame in which it happens is very unrealistic. But one one thing I love, which is great is that one of the wrestlers who is collateral damage and ends up being killed by the Japanese mafia's assassin, his, um, his, wrestling name was walsh w-a-l-s-h and it comes out later his real name was fuller so of course this is supposed to be fuller welch so of course bob roop writing a novel the one wrestler he kills is named fuller slash walsh okay so clearly he's still holding a grudge Uh, against the stud all these years later um, wow. But this this guy, the the <laughs> person that's brought in to go undercover in the world of wrestling, he trains in the matter of four days and then gets booked for Cowboy Latrol in Florida. Hmm. So again, a little unrealistic. And while Cowboy is using his real name, a lot of the wrestlers in this book are uh, their names are slightly you know switched up. I mentioned to you earlier um, one of the wrestlers that Mick Michaels encounters is named Shiki Okina. So who would that be? Shiki Okina. Yes. Shiki Okina? That would Okina? be Oki Shikina. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. what he does. He sort of switches names around. So there's also a Korean wrestler named Sang Pak. So who would that be? Pak, Pak Song? Pak Song. And his manager, Dr. Hartley Gray. So that's Gary Hart, yeah. Yes, so that's Gary Hart. So this is all throughout the book, things like that. There are brother, a brother team of wrestlers. One of them is named Jerry Jacks, and the other is Jason Jacks. Probably the Briscoes. That would be the Briscoes, exactly. So uh, it's all sorts of names like that. So it's fun to read along and sort of see if you can figure out who he's talking about. But the novel, it's really long. It's about 390 pages, and a good half of it is talking about the night after uh, Mick Michaels' first pro match with all the shenanigans going on in the hotel where they pull the famed Mabel rib on Uh. Mick Michaels. Um, Pacing-wise, this is really way too much time to spend on that. Hmm. I think if Bob set, uh, set forth to write a much shorter novel, almost like a pulp novel... It could have been really good, but he also, uh, Bob is obviously a very intelligent man, but it seems like he really wants the reader to know that every single page, uh, he takes a really long time to sort of describe things. And this is very eloquently written, but it's unnecessary. Um, but anyway, as this all turns out, the, th- the things move so quickly that the Japanese find out that this Mick Michaels is, uh, or they suspect 
that there's someone undercover in the Florida wrestling promotion. So the mobster sends his hired gun, who is also a pro wrestler in Japan, who has killed two men, um, to go to Florida. And he's, he's literally given the orders. If there's anyone new in the territory, you must kill him. So on Mick Michaels' second night in the territory, he's uh, thrust into a battle royal with this uh, Japanese assassin. Uh, he ends up, well, first off, the Japanese uh, wrestler kills the booker, whose name is Louis Little. So Louis Tillet. Louis Tillet, exactly. <laughs> um, by squeezing his head and then stepping on it until it literally explodes. Okay. And this wow. is in the middle of a show in Miami. Yeah. Uh, and even though the CIA or FBI or whoever it was are all there. They don't do anything. And they let Mick Michaels and this Japanese assassin continue to fight to the death. And it literally ends up being to the death. I will say the description of this last match of this fight scene is really well written. And in fact, um, I was all set to give this book a really, 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 really poor review I I can't do that anymore. Um, what like like I said, Bob clearly you know this was his first and only novel. He's very smart. He's uh, yeah has a really good vocabulary, but the subject matter of this really lended itself towards a shorter, pulpier novel. But there was something there. As a matter of fact, at the end of the book, um, it says it, there's a tease for part two, another Mick Michaels novel that, to the best of my knowledge, never came to be. And it's a shame because I think, you know, I think Bob might have been able to learn from his experiences and and done uh, a much better book the second time around. Because like I said, it starts out slow and long and tedious, but ends up really exciting and interesting. So if he kept that momentum going, the second book might have been uh, really good. It's, there's there's so many interesting things going on with Bob Roop. Like he's a guy I would love to play like armchair psychologist with there's, you know, there's the whole dynamic of him being like an ex amateur wrestler involved in pro wrestling, where it seems like the pro wrestlers who weren't ex amateurs have a tremendous amount of respect for those who were, whereas the guys who were ex amateur wrestlers didn't really talk about being ex amateurs or their experiences. I don't, I don't want to say they didn't respect each other, but the respect between or among the ex amateurs wasn't as high or doesn't seem to be as high as between a guy who was strictly a pro wrestler and a pro with the amateur credentials. Like Roop, the way Roop talks about like Dale Lewis. It's interesting you say that the book clearly frames it as the professional wrestlers looking down upon the newcomer who's has legitimate amateur credentials. And what's really interesting is another one of the names, uh, the, the sort of switched up names. Um, Bob talks about another, former amateur wrestler in the territory that everybody dislikes that all the boys dislike and seems to constantly be doing the wrong things in the ring, getting the wrong kind of heat. And his name in the book is Lou Dallas. Lou Dallas. Dale Lewis. (laughs) He's got a bug up his ass that Dale Lewis, man. Yeah. Really? He really, really does. And so yeah, he's holding, he's holding grudges years later against Fuller and Dale Lewis. And he's, He's, uh, yeah. A smart guy, like published author, I think political science degree. And again, this is so interesting, like having this, him having this background and how that sort of manifests itself during his wrestling career, more so when he becomes a part of the office or when he's booking or whatever. Uh, you know, he has an inclination to want to to run things or run opposition on, on occasion. Um, yeah. 
Finally, a quick plug for the new Rock Rims book, the Roy Shire biography. He goes into a little bit of detail about Roop attempting to, to run opposition to, uh, to, to, to Shire uh, and presents different accounts and different people involved with promotion. And, you know, in, in life, they always say, oh, there's two sides to every story. In, in wrestling, rarely are there just two sides. So it's, it's very easy to cast one side as the hero and, and the villain in those situations, but it's not always that black and white. So it, it's really, it's really interesting. And I, and I love Bob Roop. I don't mean to any of this to come off as disparaging. I'm sure neither do you or, or judgmental, but it's just really interesting, like given his, his, his political science background and the, the, the things he did in his career. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, we, we were talking when we were talking about the grappler, you talked about his humility. One thing I found interesting, there's an article on Slam Wrestling about Bob Roop, and he's pretty seems to be pretty honest about the money he made as a wrestler. He said he figures most years were in the fifty to sixty thousand dollar range, and his best year he made eighty thousand. Now, granted, in the mid seventies through early eighties, that's much more than you know those numbers are today, but still Considering what we normally hear as pay, you know, being bandied about by wrestlers, it seems that Roop is being pretty honest uh, in this. Uh, There's also an article that we'll post on our blog from the Orlando Sentinel by Rick Russo. Uh, And there's also you found a fascinating article from 1964 uh, talking about uh, Bob in his first attempt uh, to uh, compete in the Olympics. He lost in the Olympic trials. And who did he lose to, John? A, a young Jim Raschke, who would go on to uh, become uh, the, the, the Baron, Baron Von Raschke. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting, like that, that whole story. Like, I think, I think Raschke was a couple years older. Yeah, uh, in 64, couple... he's, I think, 24 or 25. Yeah, yeah his, his group's date of birth is incorrect. On his on his Wikipedia, it lists his birth year as 47, but I think it's more likely 42, 43, because that makes more sense with the college college timeline. Right. But they they strike up a friendship, and 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 and, and Rashi was impressed with Roop as a, as a wrestler and as a guy, and he's the one who encouraged him to to further pursue uh, amateur collegiate wrestling. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know he and he does. He goes to the Southern Southern Illinois, I think, four time yes, All American. Uh, 68 Olympic team, blah, blah, blah. and I think he was considering doing like the 72 Olympics, but he ran into uh, his old buddy Larry Heinemey, who was also a Lars Anderson, collegiate. yeah, and regional champion in his own right. And, and Roop, Roop talks about remembering him as like a nondescript sort of just guy, and then he runs into him and he's got like a bleach blonde hair, he's got diamond rings, he's driving a Cadillac. And he's telling him all the places he was traveling, all the money he was making, and 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 Roop became interested in in, in going pro, and he get got a meeting with I think Eddie Graham, and that was the rest of the history, really. Yeah, um, and, and so yeah, his he spent a lot of time in Florida, and this book Death Matches set in the Florida territory. So you know, it's he's clearly using a lot of his real life experiences to uh, create this. Uh, work of fiction. Uh, like I said, it's out of print and hard to find. And uh, and if you do find it, you have to pay a lot for it. But uh, if what I've described is of interest to you, you should check out Deathmatch, a Mick Michaels novel by Bob Roop. 
Uh, also, you found an article uh, from uh, one of the Western publications uh, talking about Russian roulette, where uh, he's teaming with Alexei Smirnov. And there's a great quote in there talking about their manager, Gerhard Kaiser. Uh, the quote is, Kaiser has paid us good money to cripple Patterson and his two taco eating friends, Pepper Gomez and Alberto Madrill. Yeah, I just love the uh, magazines of the old days because uh, they they just got away with with shit you couldn't get away with nowadays. Yeah. Uh, we've got a couple of clips on YouTube. Uh, Roop and Orton uh, from oh, Knoxville teaming up against Terry Gibbs and Ronnie Garvin, and this is also uh, noted for uh, the commentator who is uh, Ron Wright joins yeah. the, joins commentary for this one. And then there's a uh, clip from Georgia on YouTube of Roop versus the Iron Sheik. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned his uh, that uh, Roop had been friends with future pro wrestlers Jim Rashke, uh, Baron Von Rashke, and Larry Heinemey. On commentary for this match in Georgia is another wrestler who knew Roop uh, from the amateur days, and that is Tim Woods. Ah. Yeah. on commentary so if you want to see Roop in action that match that match with Sheik uh, it's a time limit draw it's really nondescript but Sheik is managed by Paul Ellering but yeah. there's a lot of good amateur wrestling also at one point Sheik does this somersault uh, leg drop that Roop moves out of the way of yeah. which just blew, I was not expecting that yep. from uh, <laughs> the uh, you know not always known as being agile no Ali Vaziri so that is a look at 1981. And like I said, you know, Paul Orndorff was the, uh, the big man on campus at this point in time. And, uh, we of course were sad to hear of his passing. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, it seems that every month we do these, John, you know, it wasn't too long ago. We were talking about Butch Reed, uh, that someone yeah. who is in our notes and in our outline, uh, unfortunately passes away. Um, you know, also Don Cronodal recently passed away. When I talk about my trip to Waterloo, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, but we're going to go a little bit further back in time to 1964 and the third quarter of 1964 in the McGurk territory. We talked last month about three newcomers that aren't usually uh, associated with this territory. That was Art Nelson, uh, Bobby Hercules Graham, and Mike Gallagher. They're all still here. Um, also around is Al Lovelock, Jerry Kozak, um, Stan Pulaski, and Carol Krauser were there, and they were a regular heel tag team, but both of them got injured early in the quarter. Pulaski's out for a few weeks. Krauser, who, according to an article in Springfield, Missouri newspaper, had knee surgery in Tulsa, uh, was out for a while, and when he returned, he actually went to a different territory. Uh, in the fall of 1964, Carl Krauser, who we've talked about in the past, he was the model for the old Superman um, comic. Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. But he actually uh, passed away in the dressing room uh, uh, after a match, uh, reportedly of a heart attack in Utah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's tough. That's, uh, cause he was, I think it was early or mid fifties at this point in time. So he's still on the young side. Uh, we mentioned last month also that Danny Hodge had left during the second quarter and went to Florida. And while he's in Florida, John, he loses the NWA world junior heavyweight title to hero Matsuda. Hmm. Matsuda had been here, uh, in 1963 is the great Matsuda. And what they do is they have some rematches in Florida, but then Matsuda comes here at the end of August with the belt 
and they establish him by having him wrestle some of the baby faces like Kozak. Um, I think even Nelson Royal, even though Nelson's a heel. Um, but at the very end of the quarter, Hodge comes back too. And so they begin a storyline where Hodge is gunning for a rematch with Matsuda to try and regain the title. And this time it'll be in Hodge's home turf. Uh-huh. So that's an interesting angle because uh, in this time frame, we really don't see a lot uh, in the way of angles per se. Uh, feuds tend to play out in the house shows uh, because in this day and age, you know, they had the flexibility. If a feud drew well in one town, they would do an angle to keep it going. And if it didn't draw well in another town, they would just put the baby face over clean and move on to something else. And sometimes they would repeat the same angles. But one of the feuds going on during this quarter was the feud between Al Lovelock and Mike Gallagher. And on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com, you can see a town by town, week by week recap of the feud. What's interesting is the feud follows the same basic premise but there are slight differences in each town in yeah. how they do the angles and what the stipulations are for the rematch. But the basic gist of it is that Mike Gallagher is using illegal karate thrusts <laughs> to get over on Al Lovelock. Yeah, this might be my favorite anatomy of a feud on the blog. Uh, yeah, because it's like, so, like I said, yeah, they're all slightly different how they build to these rematches. In one in one town, uh, Lovelock is allowed to wear some sort of a chest protector <laughs> to protect him from these karate thrusts. <laughs> he's going out there dressed like Axl Rose in 1992. You know? <laughs> and in some towns, he's in some towns he's wearing the mask. In most towns, he's unmasked as Al Lovelock, and they usually call him Al Bolo Lovelock. Uh-huh. But in two of the towns. He's wearing the mask, and I forget the specifics, but one of them, uh, Gallagher, ends up twisting the mask around so that uh, Lovelock can't see. And so the rematch is where they build to Lovelock wrestling without the mask, which I think was the first time it happened in that town. Huh. So it's just really interesting that each town has its own narrative that generally follows the same big picture story, but has its own unique, subtle differences. Yeah, the little tweaks are great. Like one of them has a boxing match. It's oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, and that, well, the boxing match had been a big draw in this territory for Hodge, ah, okay. um, because of his uh, amateur and pro boxing background. Yeah. That was that was his equivalent of the coal miner's glove or the chain ma- or, or the dog oh, collar okay. match. Yeah, that yeah. was his go-to big blow-off match. So it was big enough in the territory that they also brought it up for other feuds as well. Um, Look at the newcomers. There's a few familiar faces who had been here previously, as I mentioned already, Nelson Royal, but also Jack Donovan and Tom Bradley returned. But there's a few who are making their first ever appearances for McGurk. Uh, and these are uh, Chuck Carbo, Carl Gotch, and Lon Stewart. In the case of Gotch and Stewart, this is, I believe, their one and only stint in the territory. And Chuck Carbo becomes a regular and one of the top guys for the rest of the 60s and even into the early 70s. We're going to talk about Carbo and Stewart. And if you're not familiar with who Lon Stewart is, trust me, you know who he is. We'll get there eventually. But I want to talk about Gotch because Gotch is brought in and definitely pushed strongly. You can see his week-to-week spot rating. He's moving up steadily into the upper mid-cards. He's winning most, if not all, of his bouts. But it seems that he leaves abruptly. An article in the Springfield, Missouri newspaper in early October um, 
talking about a match he had been advertised for, says he withdrew because of the illness of his wife. Hmm. Now, looking at uh, the rest of the week, he doesn't make his advertised bookings in this territory. And a week later, he starts full time with Vancouver. I have no idea if there's truth to the story or not. I'm not sure where Gotch had come from, you know, prior to coming here. But, you know, we're merely presenting what we know is that um, it says in the newspaper he left due to the illness of his wife. Uh, a week later, he's wrestling in Vancouver. Do with that information what you will. Yep. But now we're going to talk about someone who, outside of this territory and maybe Arizona, yeah. he never really got uh, a lot of publicity. And, and it's a darn shame because from all descriptions, he sounds like oh, a yeah. nut job. And a, yeah. what do I, every month I find someone, I say, in a business filled with nut jobs, Chuck <laughs> Carbo stood out as an even <laughs> nuttier job than the other <laughs> nut jobs. <laughs> so crazy, crazy a, Chuck Carbo. Yeah, a great description of him comes from Bob Miller on oh, kfamemories.com. Sporting spiked sideburns and devilish goatee, Carbo was a menacing heel for much of his career. He turned pro in 1962, originally using the name Chuck Campbell. He first took the Carbo surname in Amarillo in April 1964. While a main eventer for McGurk later in the decade, he often played on the Texas versus Oklahoma rivalry. So Bob wrote that in one promo, Carbo claimed that he would lie in wait at the Texas border and any car passing by with Arkansas or Oklahoma license plates would be shot at. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, you know, you can't make something like that up. So this is no. probably rooted in truth to some fashion, uh, to some oh God, degree. but yeah. he was billed from Mule Shoe, Texas for a lot of his career. He was the first North American champion yep. in the McGurk territory when they created that title, I believe 1969. Um, and he won it by way of a fictitious tournament in Phoenix with over 100 other wrestlers. Oh my God. That's a hell of a tournament. Uh, yeah, that geez. blows Rio de Janeiro out of the water, yeah. John. Oh. Yeah, it's but funny. Tell, I, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, crazy Chuck Carbo, the the pride of of a Mule Shoe, Texas. I was skeptical of Mule Shoe, Texas being a real town, but it is a real town. Yeah, uh, they have they have a website, you know, and that town website, the, <laughs> the town is very very small, and this is like a how small is it? Um, the town is so small. They have on their town website a list of all the landlords in the town. Um, so if you're considering a move to a mule show, you want to get yourself a studio apartment there, boom, there you go. A list of all the landlords. I thought that was fantastic. Wow. I, I love the old small town newspapers. They always say things like, you know, Betsy Sue and her husband, Jim went to, you know, went to the big city to eat at a steakhouse. Yeah. And then they'll like list their address too. Yeah. It's the weirdest, the weirdest thing. It's heat carbo for me. Like everyone has their own personal wish, wish list of guys that you, you know you wish you had more footage of whether it's matches or even just promos and like a cr- crazy chuck carbo is on the top of that list for me like you said like the way like the description you just read with the the big ears and for a while he had these crazy sideburns and he just looked like a like a psychotic yosemite sam or something and you sent me a, a, a clip a, a while ago about someone describing how he would like hop around the ring like a yeah. kangaroo and growl like a like a rabid dog or something it's just like this guy and apparently he's also an alligator wrestler and if you see well 
sure we'll post a photo of him on the blog, but if you look at the guy, you could look at him and you'd be like, oh yeah, that guy totally wrestles alligators. Absolutely. And and so when you're that crazy, you end up uh, associating yourself with other crazies. And John, you found a house show ad from Yuma, Arizona, uh, where Carbo... If Carvo is batshit crazy, he's teaming with someone who is 10 times more batshit crazy than him. Who is that? You know, crazy Chris Colt, the two crazies. <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine between Carvo, you know, oh. laying wait uh, at the Texas border to shoot passing traffic and Chris Colt probably, you know, if they were probably if Carbo shot any anybody and they were male, we all know what Chris Colt probably did to them afterwards. Oh yeah. Hey. If he once he's I can imagine Chris Holt Chris Colt was a dry hump and a cactus. Like <laughs> so so zonked out on L S D or whatever. He I, it's so <laughs> I was I was reading about the Arizona uh aspect of his career. It's really interesting. Like you said, Arizona was the only place he really set down any kind of roots aside from from McGurk. And he actually had a, a pretty long feud with Tito Montez, who yeah. you mentioned on a recent episode of Wrestling History Mysteries. That spanned like the better part of a decade. Yeah, um, Montez probably, was a big was a big regular in Arizona. Ken Lucas had a big heel run there. Don Kent was a regular. Um, you know, someone asked me on Twitter about a month or so ago which territory I thought was the most under served or underappreciated or, or let, least discussed about. And I didn't even have to think for a second. The answer is Arizona. Hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. And apparently there's footage of him in Arizona that's out there, but I haven't been able to, to get my, my greasy, my greasy paws on well, it. Yet. If any of our listeners are able to track that down, let us know. You also found a bio from oklafan.com. That's O-K-L-A-F-A-N.com. And that's a website that a lot of people don't know about. In my research uh, in the McGurk territory, I stumbled upon it almost by accident. But his bio, they go into a lot of the details we've talked about. There's also, uh, we found an, uh, an obituary from the newspaper in Paducah, Kentucky. Uh, I've worked Paducah, Kentucky. I worked there a few weeks for Tony oh. Falk back in 1998. He called me Big Al Getz. Big Al Getz. Big Al Getz. Um, now we're going to talk about Lon Stewart, John. Oh, yes, yes. So first off, we will answer the question. Uh, Lon Stewart is much better known in wrestling circles as Dutch Savage. Yeah. But uh, this was one of the names he used early in his career. And what's interesting about Lon Stewart is that he was born in the mid-sized market paper capital of the world, <laughs> Scranton, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can imagine him on the, on the beet farm with Dwight Schrute <laughs> using, his, uh, using his coal miner glove to help dig <laughs> to plant some beets. It's funny. I was... I was over the past like a week or so, I was trying. I was reading and listening to a bunch of interviews with, with, or by Dutch Savage, trying to find uh, something new on him or a story that I hadn't heard. Hopefully, you hadn't heard. Maybe some of our listeners hadn't heard either. And I found this story <laughs> that, according to Dutch, sort of precipitates his arrival in the McGurk territory in '64. Um, he's working for Goulas at the time under the hood as Mr. X in Johnson city, Tennessee. And, and Nick Goulas sent him to work there against Billy Hines wanted Dutch to make him look good. Uh, and Dutch was still kind of rookie here, but he was, you know, six, four big dude. And Billy Hines was a, a smaller guy, like five, five, nine, five, ten. And Dutch was getting kind of tired of doing all these jobs for Goulas. Uh, so at some point during the match, Billy paintbrushes Dutch intently and Dutch gets pissed. So they, they start really laying the punches in Dutch busts Billy up good 
Uh, Billy's the babyface here. And eventually he has to go over and pin Dutch, which does happen. But Billy is so popular with the fans that when the crowd finally sees his face at the end, it's all bloody, his eyes swollen shut. Uh, things start to go come unglued in the in the arena. Dutch has to get like a two by four to get to his car after the match. Fans are throwing bricks at his car. He's got to fight a couple guys on the way to the parking lot. All this time, he still has his mask on. This is, you know, John, 1964, Johnson City, Tennessee. Mask must stay on. So he finally gets to the car, drives a couple miles until he gets to like a, a bridge viaduct type structure where he stops to take off the mask. He's got the mask like halfway off and he sees six police cars in his rearview mirror, sirens on, coming over the ridge. And Dutch is like, oh shit, here they come. So they surround the car. All of them have the guns drawn. They get him out of the car. One of them says, uh, you are under arrest for uh, enticing a riot. And Dutch being being Dutch says, excuse me, officer, don't you mean in- inciting a riot? Ooh. <laughs> oh, and it's like, don't you get smart with me, you Yankee SOB. Well, they arrest him. No phone call. And his bail is like $50, which is probably like, what, like four or $500 in, 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 yeah. in today money. Yeah. Um, and Dutch had the money on him, but they're like, no, nope, well, let me go to his wallet or anything. But Goulis doesn't post bail for him. He sits in jail for three days until Lester Welch <laughs> flies up and bails him out. And Lester's like, this is all over the papers and the TV. You know, then they accuse Dutch of, of blinding Billy Hines because his eyes are so blackened and swollen shut. And Lester's like, you know, this is great press. I'll get you out of here. You're going to be the biggest thing around. We'll sell out for months to come, yada, yada, yada. And Dutch is like, yeah, great, fine. Okay, it's fine. Yeah, just, just get me out of here. So <laughs> they bail him out. <laughs> Dutch goes back to his trailer in Nashville. Packs his bags and drives directly to Tulsa to work for Leroy McGurk. <laughs> so I'm assuming Billy Hines was Billy Boy Hines, uh, yes. the, the brother of Bad Boy Hines. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yes, yes. They're another team that, you know, were around forever and just don't seem to be talked about as much as, as others. Uh, they worked Gulf Coast a lot. They worked Mid-Atlantic. Uh, they, yeah, they just... You know, so like like I said, that's why I do turning the territories is to literally try and chart the careers of all these wrestlers. And of course, Lon's path uh, stopped when he got to Portland because he pretty much stayed there, um, yep. except for excursions, you know, to Vancouver or San Francisco. <laughs> uh, I think he had some tours of Japan as well. But yeah, yeah for the most part, once he went to Portland and changed his name to Dutch Savage, he was there to stay, uh, and it's there that he uh, was credited as the inventor of the coal miners glove match. And the explanation yeah. was that uh, this was how coal miners in West Virginia used to settle their differences. Yeah. yeah. He, he was an important figure too, behind the scenes up yeah. there too. Like for a while time, I think he uh, was the promoter of record for, for Don Owen in Washington state. Uh, I think he bought the rights sort of from Sandor Kovacs in 72. And also like later on mid 70, I think he bought, a share, and I've heard it's much as a third of the company of Pacific Northwest Wrestling. Hmm. And, you know, the, the commentator also in his uh, wrestling days, wherever. he seems like a very, very opinionated guy. Yes, he's opinionated. He was he's well spoken, but he also was very set in his ways. Uh, yes. Post wrestling, he was a real estate agent, but he's also opened up a ministry. Uh, yeah. There's uh, in his obituary from the Columbian, which was a Vancouver newspaper. Uh, there's a quote from him uh, talking about wrestling these days. Uh, yeah. it, it's very immoral. The women and the things they do in front of the kids. In my day, if you said "damn" on TV, they took you off the air. 
Um, there's a uh, website for, uh, from Weebly with a lot of great photos that we'll link to on our blog. Uh, and you also dug up an article from Longview, Texas on a, uh, no, sorry, Longview, Washington, uh, on a lawsuit where Dutch was sued for uh, attacking a fan and hitting him, I believe, in the face and the groin. Yeah, yeah, the lower extremities. <laughs> they low. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's the that's the groinal region. Uh, that's the code word because in those days you couldn't say you know certain things in the paper, otherwise they take you off the air. I think Billy Jack was involved in that. For Billy Jack Haynes and the, for for threatening threatening the guy. Yeah, Billy. Yeah, Billy didn't get physical. He just looked at the guy who I believe was a baseball player at the school and said, "If you if you call the cops on us, you're I'll kill you." And Billy yeah. Jack. I don't know if I've told this story, but I uh, went backstage at the um, one of the big Smoky Mountain shows, the one where Buddy Landell wrestled Shawn Michaels. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And The Undertaker was there. Yeah. And walking backstage, you know, this was the first time I'd ever you know been that close to The Undertaker. And he was a big dude. But I will tell you, Billy Jack Haynes was five times more intimidating than The Undertaker I, was. I could, I could understand he, you, you Again, you don't realize how tall a lot of the guys in the 80s were until you see them standing next to you billy jack is a lot taller than you think but my god in the 90s when he had that comeback run in in memphis jesus he was an absolute beast and you know he could kill me in an instant and uh, he walked around acting like he knew it yeah, uh, yeah, that was a scary dude. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure that if, if he told me not to call the police, I would not call the police. But there's a Absolutely great not. quote at the end of the article. Apparently, there's a state law in Washington at the time that uh, court papers don't specify the amount of damages that you're pursuing. <laughs> so they quoted the plaintiff's lawyer and he said, I don't decide that until I see the jurors. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which is great, but it's also, I mean, you know, I mean, yes, that's what a good lawyer should do. They should cater everything towards the specific jury you have. So I guess depending on his read of the jury, he might ask for a whole lot or he might ask for a more modest amount based on what he feels is the probability he will get it from that specific uh, jury. There's also a, a YouTube in her YouTube clip uh, from Dutch on AM Northwest. And, and you oh mentioned boy. him being opinionated. And, and this is a good example of that. There's oh, man, there's parts of this that are almost uh, like unintentionally Saturday Night Live funny <laughs> with the, the, the extreme anti-drug, anti-steroid message. Like there's one quote. It stuck with me. I can't stop thinking about it. When he just, he just, and he just, he's like, sometimes I have to go to the bathroom 25 times a day because of my drug and steroid abuse. <laughs> I was like, Jesus Christ. Then of course I'm like, I was like, do I go to the bathroom that much? So I have to like, I spent a whole day just like keeping track of like how many times I went to the bathroom. It's not. So next times. month on charting the restroom <laughs> breaks, John will. So we're going to have to come up with statistics, you know, something per every, you know, event. So that its acronym will be the P, the P rating. <laughs> I just don't want to see my sh- my my shit rating. Hey <laughs> yo. Oh yeah. So uh, yeah, Dutch, a, a very uh, outspoken man later in his career, but really an important part of Portland wrestling, both in the ring and behind the scenes. Yep. Uh, really important character, and he got his start in Scranton, Pennsylvania, of all places. And his journey took him through Oklahoma and Louisiana for the Leroy McGurk territory, where he was known as Lon Stewart. I just love that name. It's like a handsome actor name, you know, Lon Stewart. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good name, but I think Dutch Savage worked for him. I think he found uh, a great name. Uh, also in the quarter, looking at the frequent partners and opponents chart, the first thing you'll see is there are no frequent partners. Uh, there was only one regular tag team, and that was Krauser and Pulaski. And like I mentioned, they both got hurt early in the quarter, so they're not teaming up. Um, you end up with uh, some feuds. Uh, we mentioned Gallagher versus Lovelock. You also have Gallagher versus Jerry Kozak. And you have Nelson Royal versus Bobby Graham. But realistically, what's really interesting, there was a Twitter discussion earlier this month um, talking about uh, the origin of it was that was Vince's longtime standing in belief that tag teams didn't draw. And so there was an argument back and forth. People were like, well, Mid-Atlantic was a huge tag team territory for years, blah, 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 blah. I didn't respond to the Twitter thread because both both sides of the argument were pretty much set in their ways and, and weren't going to budge. And it, But I got to thinking, the towns that had a weekly loop, the main events were often tag team bouts between singles wrestlers. Yep. Uh, and they were used to perhaps set up a stipulation bout with two of the wrestlers later on down the road. But, you know, when you have to come back every week, you really got to mix it up. So I think a lot yep. of times you find in the weekly towns, a tag team match may not necessarily be involving regular tag teams, but a tag team match is frequently in the main event. In the towns that aren't run weekly, more often than not, there are singles bouts at the top of the card. Think about Greensboro and Winston-Salem. Even when Mid-Atlantic was focused on tag teams, the main events in Greensboro and Winston-Salem, which were run monthly, are singles matches. When Florida ran the Bayfront Center in uh, St. Petersburg, their huge venue, singles matches were the main event. Think about the two territories that had monthly loops. This was the AWA and the WWWF. Their main events are more often singles matches than tag teams. So I think it has to do with the frequency of the loop in the territory. So Vince's belief that tag teams didn't draw is based on him operating his territory in a monthly loop where singles bouts were the key. Agreed. Agreed. As was often the case, besides all these male wrestlers uh, wrestling in various combinations of singles matches and tag team matches, there are some female wrestlers as well as some male midget wrestlers brought in as special attractions for a week or two at the time. Um, when I cover them on the blog, I always make a note of who was there and when they were in and what the spot rating for that group as a whole was, but I don't list their individual spot rating. So, for example, if two female wrestlers come in for two weeks their spot rating is going to be the same because they're wrestling each other yeah. every night. Um, also, the spot rating is dependent upon a, a large data set, which is why even though I call it a weekly spot rating, it's based on five weeks worth of data. So when they only come in for two weeks, it's, it's really hard to get a read on what their spot is. Also, they're not moving up or down the cards like a wrestler is when he first comes in and gets pushed or when he's being finished up and he, moves down the cards the women and the male midgets and the female midgets uh and and the wrestling bears are generally around a 0 0.60 spot rating which puts them right on the border of mid card and upper mid card which sort of makes sense if you think about uh the cards when they're there you have a main event you often have a semi-main event and then you will have that special special event the, the, the special feature. And then you have one or two prelims. 
So that's sort of in line with where their spot rating would be. Now, I think if you over a very long period of time looked at Moolah compared to the other women wrestlers at the same time, I think you would definitely see Moolah having a higher spot rating, but that's dependent upon looking at several years worth of data from yeah. across all territories. I know when Moolah is defending her title, it's usually the main or the semi-main on the on most cards. Um, but most of the time she's there with either one or three, and it's usually four. It's usually a group of four and they work tags and then they're split off. And sometimes they'll work mixed tags or singles matches. So they're really for the short time they're in any one territory, their spot rating is the same. And then for that reason, we don't talk about women wrestlers on this podcast, or at least we haven't until now. Oh yeah. Because John, someone tagged us on Twitter with a magazine cover asking oh, us yeah. who the attractive female wrestler in the lower right corner was. Oh yeah, I and recognize you, her. Yeah, you uh, <laughs> you responded that it was Ann Casey. Yep. And so I I you know of course I know who Ann Casey is, but I decided to just do a quick little Google search and see you know find out a little bit more about Ann. And man, she yeah. has a fascinating life story to tell. And I oh, immediately boy. said, you know what? For the first time on Charting the Territories podcast, we are going to spotlight, do our medium dives on a female wrestler. And so that is Anne Casey. Oh, boy. Yeah. She, I, I, I had heard parts of her life story as well, but it's really just it was just the tip of the iceberg. I found out. <laughs> yeah, she uh, she got her start in wrestling. She was working as the as the secretary and the ticket seller for the Mobile office in 1962. Uh, she went to the locker room to hand Mula an envelope with uh, her pay, and Mula took one look at her and offered to train her pretty much right on the spot. And I think yep. it wasn't long thereafter that Anne packed her bags and moved to South Carolina. Yeah. Yeah, she yeah she drops off her drops off her son George with with his dad and goes off to find Mula, and she was out when she maybe just showing up there she was already in great shape, uh, from working on the farm. I think it's like she tells the story like at the first day of training she she hopped over the top rope to get in the ring, and Mula had never seen anyone do this before, let alone on their first day before training. And, you know, Anne was like, oh, it's just like hop on the fence of the farm. So Mula immediately knew she had something there. She, you know, goes to the leopard print tights and dolls her up and bam, she's the, the panther girl, Anne Casey. Um, and she's with the Mula Bookter for the better part of the of the decade, better part of the 60s. Um, and she gets more and more popular, uh, eventually decides to go go it on her own. And we all know the, the Mula stories. And Anne was probably tired of seeing uh, Mula line her pockets while she was getting more invoices from Mula than than checks. Uh, you know, Mula of course curses her out, but Anne wants to uh, to go it alone. It's like the, the the early early 70s, and she's making really decent money 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 here. And overall, women's wrestling seems to gain quite a bit of tr traction during this time. The one of the main reasons being that it was allowed to happen in a lot of territories and venues where it wasn't where it was banned for years and years and years california i think it was outlawed till 66 msg didn't have women matches until 72 oregon didn't allow it till 75 and even if Anne isn't necessarily wrestling in all of those specific territories or venues she is nonetheless reaping the benefits of the popularity of and i think the magazines have a lot to do yeah. with it as well because oh, uh, yeah. how are you going to sell a magazine what's an easy way to sell a wrestling magazine is to put an attractive female 
on the cover. I remember, so I got into it in the 80s. Uh, the, uh, one of the wrestling magazines always had the apartment wrestling article in the back. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah you know where it yep. seems like it wasn't a real federation it was you know they just you know, <laughs> did set up a photo shoot um so yeah the, because of that you know there was more of a, a focus on the females what's interesting is there uh the article from wrestling review titled miss body beautiful of wrestling just to give you an idea of how the women reviewed the article makes a point to mention her measurements Oh, yeah. uh, which were 38, 24, 36, <laughs> and goes on to say, if she wins the women's U.S. title, this is and this is a great line. Hers will be the classiest chassis to ever wear it. Uh, great, great wordplay. Yeah, great, great wordplay, but also you know, just showing you how the women were presented at the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah. this uh, Legend of Panther Girl, you found there's an interview uh, from NPR with the... Um, the author of a, an incredibly detailed article um, yeah. about Ann Casey uh, called legend of Panther girl. And there's some amazing stories in there. I wish we had time to tell them all, but all, but I, I urge you to go read this article uh, about the legend of Panther girl. We'll, we'll have a link to it on our blog, John. I think the, you know, the big story is uh, her getting shot six times and uh, <laughs> yeah. getting back in the wrestling ring less than a year later. So, so let's hit the, uh, the high notes, the high points of that uh, story. Yeah. The high, it, early seventies, she comes home from a, a tour, finds a stash of drugs in her son's like dresser drawer. There's some weed, some stuff, but she finds like all kinds of pills and weird powders. She doesn't recognize it. She, she's, she's freaked out, scared, goes to the cops. The cops realize the kid is probably involved in something bigger uh, just, you know, so they get the DEA involved and the DEA suspect George of being involved in this, like this drug ring run by the Mississippi truck drivers. Uh, so according to Anne, the DEA makes a deal, cooperate with them. They won't prosecute your son. So according to her, she begins using her traveling as a cover for undercover police work, infiltrating the truck driver community. When this, uh, I, this, uh, this is this is not that different from uh, Bob Roop's book. No, there's a lot going here. Um, so she's feeding the cops names, license plate numbers, whole nine yards. Eventually, she figures out who the leader, the kingpin, if you will, of the gang is. Unfortunately, and unbeknownst to Anne, the local sheriff was taking bribes from the kingpin, and the sheriff told the kingpin what Anne was doing. And on um, September 17th, 1973, she's at an intersection waiting for the light to change, doing her makeup, and the truck driver kingpin walks up to the car and just unloads six six shots into into Anne Casey. <laughs> And I think, yeah, I think it's all six bolts that hit her. And she managed to drive to a gas station where they call for help to get to the hospital. Flatlines twice, but they're able to save her. Now, um, I want real quick, I want to interject and point out, as amazing as it sounds that after being shot six times, she was able to drive herself to the hospital. The author of this story tracked down the surgeon yep. and verified the story that, that she was indeed shot six times and um, was not taken by ambulance to the hospital. Yeah. Uh, Gilbert O. Spencer is the surgeon's name. And I found his obituary. So he's a, he's a real guy. Um, so one would figure at this point, Anne would have hung up her boots. Nope. <laughs> she, yeah. No, well, less, not than, boots. A, less than a year later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she didn't hang up her boots. She wrestled barefoot. Oh, um, yeah. I see she's back there yet, yet less than a year later. She's wrestling uh, Miss Sherry Lee. 
superstar Billy Graham's mother-in-law. So uh, so let's take this story of Dr. Death, Steve Williams, getting 108 stitches in wrestling later that night. And now when we compare it to Ann Casey getting shot six times and getting back in the ring within a year, I think Ann Casey is tougher than Dr. Death, at least in this particular instance. Yeah, and that... <laughs> and... You know, and, and if you think that's the the end of the drama in her life, you'd be you'd be very wrong. Also, there's yeah, I like so much I, more to the story. Yeah, I, I like there's so many cool things that I want to say, but trust me, read the story. Uh, yeah. We've got a link to it on on our companion piece on the blog. There's some amazing story. Uh, the the end, the story at the end is like the kicker. On top of everything yeah. else, is if you didn't think yeah. anything more insane and ridiculous could happen, well, uh, we yeah. talk about her uh, her her last uh, one of her last paramours. Um, so yeah, it's a great story, but Ann Casey, uh, you know, was a, uh, she was one of Moolah's, a member of Moolah's troop for many years, but then she forged her own path for many years as well. And, uh, you know, again, like so many others made a living as a professional wrestler for many years. And that's, you know, one of the things we want to spotlight on this podcast. And, uh, you know, we're not the only place that is, uh, you know, paying homage to these wrestlers, the, uh, in Waterloo, Iowa, they have the Tragos Thez Hall of Fame, and they have an induction ceremony every year. And this year, for the first time, I went up. Ah. So I went to Waterloo, Iowa. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, this is the first time I ever set foot in the state of Iowa. Interesting. Huh. Um, now, what I will say about my first, uh, you know, visit to the Dan Gable Museum and, and Wrestling Hall of Fame, uh, as anyone who will ever who has ever been there, they will tell you the first thing that they noticed was the same thing that I noticed, that the Dan Gable Museum and Wrestling Hall of Fame is right next door to an establishment named Flirts. Flirts? Flirts. Uh, and let's just say it's a place where uh, if wrestling has scantily clad, well-shaped athletes perpetuating a fantasy, Flirts has a very similar uh, group of employees as well. Wow. Did you go to Flirts? I did not. What? I oh. I was shocked as you were. Yeah, so Waterloo, Iowa, the um, it, it's mostly for uh, collegiate wrestling. Obviously, uh, it's Dan Gable's um, deal, but they do have a uh, a section in the back in the corner for pro wrestling. They have a small little ring set up. They have a lot of great wrestling memorabilia. They have a trunk that was originally used by Frank Gotch. Oh wow! Uh, they have all sorts of great pictures and other items. Uh, you know, worn you know used boots, uh, robes, and things like that. Um, but the weekend, aside from the Hall of Fame induction, there was a lot of other things going on. There was a wrestling show. There was actually a day, a daytime show and a nighttime show. Um, uh, Colt Cabana was there, uh, but a number of wrestlers were there, not just the ones that were getting inducted. Ken Shamrock and Mark Henry were inducted. Also posthumously inducted was Don Kernodal, and Rocky Kernodal uh, gave the speech on behalf of his brother, along with some help from Sergeant Slaughter. Oh. Um Mark James uh, got the Jim Melby Award for Wrestling Historians. Okay. I also got to meet Mark for the first time. Uh, of course, yeah. Mark has some amazing books. I think he's written four dozen books, yeah. mostly covering the Jarrett territory, mostly, um, but covering numerous other territories, including Mid-South Wrestling uh, among them. So it was nice. I, I briefly talked to him. Also, John Arezzi was oh, there. I, I got there, to meet yeah. him. He's our, our, from our, one of our sister podcasts here on yeah. the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. Um, but among the wrestling luminaries were Thunderbolt 
uh, Patterson, Jerry oh, Briscoe, wow. who's the president of the Hall of Fame. J.J. Dillon was there. Barbara Goodish oh. was there. Rock Riddle was there. Um, Baron Von Raschke, I think, had been at the wrestling show the night before. Um, and also, uh, I do want to mention a gentleman who listens to our podcast regularly. Uh, his name is Chad Olson. Uh, and I've talked to him before. Uh, what I didn't know is that he was one of the big wigs behind this whole weekend. Oh, wow. Um, he was one of the uh, key point men in organizing this whole thing. I also want to thank him for helping arrange me a ride from the Cedar Rapids airport. Uh, you remember a couple of months ago, I was figuring out, trying to figure out how yeah. I would get from Cedar Rapids <laughs> to uh, Waterloo, which was an hour yeah. away. Chad was nice enough to arrange for transportation uh, for me, which I think is mostly for the wrestlers and luminaries. But apparently I was just a, a VI, just VI enough of a P to warrant <laughs> one way transportation. I was I was on my own to get back to the airport yeah. on Sunday. But uh, I do want to thank Chad for, uh, you know, taking the time to talk to me, and introduce himself, assist me with that. And also for listening to the podcast. Also met Brian Westcott. Uh, who has probably forgotten more about professional wrestling history than I know at this point. Um, so yeah, I had a great time in Waterloo. Uh, I strongly encourage all our listeners. Um, this is my first time there. I already uh, am planning to go back next year. I'm going to Cauliflower Alley uh, in September of this year. Ooh, wow. I, I want to go to more and more of these things. And, and as someone who's been to a few of them, I've been to some of Barry Rose's uh, fan gatherings in Florida, and those are well run as well. But uh, if you're on the fence about going to Waterloo, uh, I give it a, a very solid recommendation. So think about that. They already announced the date. It's going to be in July of 2022. Um, so uh, if you want to make plans now, make plans to go there. I also want to shout out uh, one of my Twitter followers named Dwayne, I ended up sitting next to him during the banquet uh, and induction ceremony. Uh, so he, say, he sat down, took one look at me, says, Al. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I follow you on Twitter. I'm like, hell yeah. So it was cool meeting uh, so many of these people. Um, so that, that was one of my travels. I also had been to Montgomery, Alabama last month. And if you listened to the latest episode of Stats 101, which came out two weeks ago, um, you would know that my trip to Montgomery was moderately successful, but I ended the podcast with a cliffhanger and I went to Little Rock because I had a lead on what might've been a weekly town from McGurk that had not been documented up to this point in town in time. I will say I was successful. And next month on the next episode of stats 101, I will name the town, but it was a weekly town for Leroy McGurk for seven years. Wow. And to this point in time, there are only records for one known house show uh, on WrestlingData.com. Wow. But we now, thanks to my hard work and my research and my following leads, we now have about 300 more. Wow. Yeah. Weekly. It was a Friday. And it was wow. a Friday night town. And it wasn't a B town either. Wow. You know, Hodge was there. All, you know, all the big names were there. Oh, wow. So uh, I will name funny. this town. <laughs> on the next episode of Stats 101, coming the second Thursday in August. Ah, another cliffhanger. <laughs> another cliffhanger, yes. I love these um, So that updates our listeners on my travels. But John, as I think our listeners know, you live in New York, so you have not done a whole lot of traveling for a very long time. I but that not. changed recently. Oh, yeah. It, it wasn't the wrestling hall of fame. I went to the, the baseball hall of fame. And I had never been to the baseball hall of fame. So that was very... Very exciting. My 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 in-laws live up 
up there close a uh, little you know suburb of, of Syracuse I guess and they uh took a little trip there and I you know I I I'd never been there so going there as an adult that I never being there I spent about 20 minutes on each exhibit just mouth agape looking uh, at all this stuff Did you have that, a favorite it, exhibit or favorite piece of memorabilia? The um no not uh, not a specific one George Brett's pine tar bat was being lent out, which really upset oh. me because I want to see the pine tar bat. Um, I, I really enjoyed the uniforms, especially seeing these old uniforms that I've only seen in black and white. Like they had, uh, was it, I think it was Casey Stengel's sort of like warm-up jacket from the Yankees. And I was fascinated with it because it has, you know, it's the, the typical, you know, Yankees white and blue, but also had red stitching and red piping all along the bottom and the sides. And you don't think of like the Yankees as having red as part of their color scheme. And like, here this is, I've only seen this jacket in, in black and white. So, and here it is, it's, it's got, it's got red on it. So I thought that was fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, and I'm sure every, everybody's been there, but if you've only been there as a child, make a point to go see it as an adult. Cause it's, 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 it's absolutely lovely. And I hope to do with the, uh, Waterloo and, and Cauliflower Alley, Alley next year once they have more money coming in than, than going out. Right. But. Yeah, I went to uh, I went to the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, on a summer camp field trip when I was probably 13 or 14. So, yeah, I would definitely love to go back as an adult. So, John, you learned that the Yankees at one point had a little bit of red in their uniforms. Uh, but red, yeah. we're now at the point of our podcast where each of us discuss one new thing we learned this month that is theoretically about pro wrestling. So John, <laughs> what about wrestling did you learn this month? Okay. So when I, when I read this, heard about this, my first thought was like, how have I never heard this before? So you, you may have already heard this or may have more information than I do. But this month I learned that killer Carl Cox was filmed, but ultimately ended up on the cutting room floor for Oliver Stone's JFK. What? Cox was cast as Lieutenant J.C. Day, uh, a guy from the Dallas Police Department. Uh, and he was there for the whole day filming as, as Cox, as J.C. Day. J.C. Day, even if you don't know the name, uh, if you're a JFK assassination buff, uh, you'll probably recognize the image of him. He was a guy who walked through all the reporters at the police station holding Oswald's Manlicker Carcano rifle over his mm. head. Okay. So the reporters and TV cameras could see it. Um, unfortunately, the scene starring Cox as J.C. Day is one of the scenes that they went back and used the original historical footage mm. for. So Cox is not in the final cut. But I really wonder if any of that scene made it into like a director's cut or bonus DVD. So I want to like try to search that out. And Cox tells a funny story about the filming where an old guy who was there working at the police station. Uh, they were filming at the actual police station. The guy comes over and says to him, whispers like, are you killer Carl Cox? And Cox says, yeah. So the guy introduces himself. He's like a news reporter who's working in the, in the station and starts talking to the cast and crew and he introduces himself to everybody. And he's like, you know who the most hated man in Dallas was in 1964? And everyone's like, yeah, Lee Harvey Oswald. And the reporter says, nope, it was him. And he points to Cox. <laughs> So apparently Killer Carl Cox had Lee Harvey Oswald heat in, in, in Dallas. That's something that not a lot of people have, that Lee Harvey Oswald heat. <laughs> no, not even. Chris Cole probably had in Arizona in the 1960s. 
but I wonder if this at first I'm like I wonder if this is a case of like wrestlers tall tales or something but 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 Cox talked about it and he like he mentions all these small little weird little details like the kind of flash bulbs they were using and everyone having to smoke lucky strike cigarettes to keep everything looking authentic and he talks about seeing you know Jack Ruby shoot Oswald 14 times so like all those little details he talks about made it definitely made a believer out of me and I think his son uh, Cody Cox is on Twitter. Maybe, yes. maybe, maybe Cody will know. But that, that was, that was. I was like, how have I never heard this story before? That's wild. I, I haven't heard that either. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. So, uh, but I will talk about something I learned this month. We were talking about Lynn Denton, and we were talking about how later in his uh, life he came back for that one little WCW run where he was victim number eighty-three of the Goldberg yep. streak. Now, I knew that prior to. Goldberg's debut on TV against Hugh Morris that he had had a few matches before that. But there's one thing about that I didn't know. So this month I learned that Bill Goldberg actually lost one of those dark matches before his huh. run on TV. Uh, and he lost to Chad Fortune. So he won, he had five matches in total. Uh, he won his first four. Then he lost to Chad Fortune. And then his next match was the one against Hugh Morris on Nitro, which began the streak. So when you think about it, the streak was legit in that it just wasn't oh, yeah. the beginning of his career. It was just after his, his loss, they, it reset to one. So it started over again. Huh. But yeah, I had no idea. So Chad Fortune was the first man ever to pin Bill Goldberg, oh. not Kevin Nash. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Take that, Kevin Nash. Take that, Kevin Nash. Man, more, we're sticking more it to time. Kevin Nash. We stuck it to Steve Williams. We're sticking it to all sorts of people this stick month. Stick it to everybody. Stick it. I, I, I didn't quite stick it to Bob Roop. Like I said, you know, the book, it's not the greatest book I've ever read. Uh, probably not the worst book I've ever read, though. So, it, you know, there's that. It's, and like I said... The ending was really well written. Uh, the description of his, his uh, the climactic battle inside the wrestling ring with uh, Mick Michaels against this Japanese assassin was really well written. Um, there, but that's uh... going to do it. Yeah, that's going to do it this month for charting the territories. Uh, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Al gets wrestling. That's L G E T Z wrestling. Our blog, where we have all these fancy charts and spreadsheets with spot ratings and frequent partners and frequent opponents uh, is at charting the You can also go to payhipcom slash charting the territories for our almanacs. Uh, so far this year, we've taken a look at 1973 in Heart of America and in Amarillo. So you can check those out at your convenience. And John, where can our listeners find you? I am at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R on Twitter and uh, lots of wrestling stuff. So please follow me. Please, please follow him. Please, he please, he needs a stalker you. so bad. I need a... No, no. <laughs> no. All right. So only follow him on Twitter, not on the street. So next month, we're going to continue looking at 1964, and we're going to cover the fourth quarter. Danny Hodge is chasing after Hiro Matsuda. Does he catch him? We'll find out next month. We'll also look at the third quarter of 1977 in the McGurk-Watts territory. Murdoch turns heel, plus two wrestlers that we talked about this month who were here in 1964 are feuding over the World Junior Heavyweight title in 1977 in the same territory which is wild when you think about it. We're also going to look at the third quarter of 1973 in Mid-Atlantic, which is part of my ongoing look at that territory, thanks to the wonderful folks 
at the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Gateway. And the third quarter of 1973 is the last quarter before George Scott comes back to the territory and is given the role of Booker. So this is our last look at what had typically been a rather stale talent roster with some big changes coming later in the fourth quarter. We're also going to air part two of my interview with Gil Culkin as we look at the towns he and his father ran from 1977 through 1979 when they had split from McGurkin Watts. Mm. To be the first to know when new episodes of Charting the Territories, Wrestling History Mysteries, and Stats 101 are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Stay cool, everybody.